December birthdays. Matter of fact, I need you to stand on your feet. Stand on your feet. December birthdays. All right, December birthdays. December. All right. Where's your husband? Okay, all right. Rob and Darina share a birthday. Um, big man in the back with the backpack. Yo, I need you to stand up because today is Bernard Pollock's birthday. Amen. You may be seated. If we have anyone who got married in December, would you please stand? If you got married in December. Yo. All right. Amen. I am broke in December. <laughs> Her birthday, our anniversary, Christmas, my mother's birthday. Thank you, Lord. So you can make checks payable. Anyway. I want to thank all of you for serving the community with the angel tree and helping out with the local schools. Um, if you, now I'm going to ask you to stand, but I'll ask the heavens to applaud you for blessing God's people. Um, those of you who not only bought the items, but you delivered them to those in the community, to their homes, to bless them that they may have a wonderful Christmas. So thank you, Strong Tower, for serving and giving in the community. Also, I want to celebrate, is Evan Yates here today? Is Evan here today? Well, Evan Yates uh, has been named the principal of Mill Creek Middle School. All right. Yeah. And we are so fortunate in this body to have so many educators and professors and leaders of institutions of learning, and we're just grateful for you, making an impact where you are. And then tomorrow night for Christmas Eve at 6.30, we'll be here at 6.30, right? Felicia, I gave the wrong time last week. It's 6.30 for about an hour long. We'll have worship, communion, uh, word, and candlelight. Uh, and then after the service, we'll have refreshments in the fellowship hall. Just a time for us to get together and thank the Lord for the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and the candles we have are upgrades from previous years. Because in previous years, we almost set this place on fire. <laughs> so these are fake, not fake, uh, they're lights that look like flames that you will hold and not burn your neighbor to your left or to your right. So I hope you'll join us tomorrow night. It'll be nice and sweet. And again, these wonderful decorations our women put up in the church. Thank you so much. It's going to be a great night to remember, reflect, and worship our Jesus. All right, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And then next week we will talk about um, expanding how a steward expands the things that God gives him or her. And we'll also have testimonies next Sunday. So if the Lord has put a testimony on your heart to share about something he did or is doing in your life in 2018, or what you're anticipating going into the new year, if you have a testimony, next week we'll give time for testimony. But you know how I do it. The testimonies are A, B, C. Articulate. Brief and Christ-centered. Y'all got the ABCs right. Articulate, brief, and Christ-centered. If you get to going a little too long, we're going to tug on your, your blouse or your shirt 
well, my wife will tug on your blouse. I will tug on your shirt and uh, try to encourage you. All right? But we want you to, to, to let the redeemed of the Lord say something next week in the house of the Lord as we close out 2018, if the Lord wills. Uh, it, uh, it'd be all right with me if he came before we hit 2019. What about you? What, 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 I know some of y'all like, I was planning on getting married in 2019. Can he hold up till I get married? But anyway, I'm looking forward to Jesus's return because the first advent is a reminder that you can bank on the second advent. The fact that he came the first time, he's coming the second time because the word prophesied both comings. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. We've been learning that a steward owns no things, but manages all things and works to expand certain things, all for the glory of the king. Today we will learn from a group of stewards who went in pursuit of the king of kings and they found him. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined 
from the wise men. I want to put a tag on this text today and speak on the subject. This is how we give it. This is how we give it. Let's pray. Lord, I have the task today, even the responsibility to go tell it from this pulpit, knowing that your people are here assembled and they need a word, a word of encouragement, a word, Lord, to help them make it, a word, Lord, to teach them, to instruct them, a word, Lord, to help set them free because that's what your truth does. And if there's someone here today who's lost, a word to help make them found, a word that they can understand that Jesus came because he loves them and he gave his life, a word that brings salvation. So Jesus, I pray that you would stand in my body through the power of the Holy Spirit whom you've given me and speak with my mouth, work past the limitations of my flesh, and I pray, Lord, that your word would reach your people and produce a harvest, some 30, some 60, and even 100-fold. And when it's said and done, may we give your name the praise because you're worthy of it all. We give you everything because everything is yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know why. The wise men are wise. Oh, yes, I do. I, I know why the wise men are so wise. The wise men are wise because they made a decision. And their decision was to give Jesus their best talents, their best time, and their best treasures. Oh, that's why they were wise. They made a decision to give to King Jesus their best time, their best talent, and their best treasure. And I want to be wise just like these men were. So the first thing I want you to see today is that the wise men gave Jesus their best talents. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, now after Jesus was born... In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the wise men gave their best talents to Jesus. We see here that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is and was, or was and is, a small village about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem, house of bread. And it's a fitting place for the one who is the bread of life to be born. This small little town, this little shepherd's village was also the birthplace of Israel's greatest king apart from Jesus, and that was King David. And that's why Bethlehem is also called the city of David. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. This is where Jesus was born. And the Bible says that he was born in the days of Herod, the king. 
And one of the ways that the Bible would use to mark time periods was to talk about the times in which certain kings ruled. So if you wanted to date a particular scenario, you would look at who ruled during that time. Matthew is following along in that Old Testament tradition by letting us know who the king was during the time of Jesus' birth. And he says that it is Herod the king, also known as Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And Herod was installed by the Romans to rule over the Jews. At that time, in fulfillment to the prophecy uh, that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, there would be several kingdoms who would rule the then known world. Starting off with Babylon, going into the Persian Empire, into the Greek Empire, and then finally into the Roman Empire. When the Romans had taken over the then known world, they also took over the area of Palestine where the Jewish people lived. And in order to help quell the situation there, they would put people in political office to rule over that area. In other words, just to try to keep the peace. But the Jewish people were under the rule of the Roman people, and the Romans would install leaders over various provinces. And Herod was installed by the Romans to rule over the area of Judea. And he, Herod, gave himself the name King of the Jews. Herod was what is called an Idumenian, uh, another way of saying he was an Edomite. And Edom uh, descended down from Esau, which was Jacob's brother, who was in constant tension with Jacob. The Edomians were typically unbelievers. They were not attached to the covenant promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were outsiders, if you were if you will. They were part Jewish, but also they would uh, uh, mingle with Gentiles. So they were mixed in their race and mixed in their religion. And this is where Herod descended from. And when he took the throne, he had a conversion, quote unquote, to Judaism uh, that many historians see was something that was politically motivated. I promise if you pay attention to this history, you'll recognize that there's nothing new under the sun. So he had a political conversion to appease his base in Jerusalem. But that, that base oftentimes questioned his conversion because of his decadent lifestyle. This man did not live like a convert to Judaism. He lived like a heathen. And history lets us know that this Herod was a great builder. So one of the things he did when he was in office was that he built fortresses. He built five fortresses for himself uh, in order to escape in case he got attacked. So he had palaces throughout the area. And the two most famous ones that I was able to tour on one of my trips to Israel was the fortress in Masada and the other one called Herodium. Um, and in order to build these palaces and these fortresses, he heavily taxed the people. And when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, would oppose him and tell him what you're doing is not healthy, it's not good for the people or the economy, he would replace those people in the cabinet and stack the cabinet to have people who would say yes to him and not challenge him. I, I told you if you just hold on, 
He built aqueducts that are still there to this day. That when you go to Israel, you're able to marvel at how well he built. But his greatest accomplishment was building Herod's temple or the second temple, if you will. Because the Jews had uh, the temple that Solomon built. But then the Babylonians destroyed that temple. Then when they got out of captivity to Babylon, they built another temple called Zerubbabel's temple that many of the Jews thought that it was not even comparable to Solomon's temple. And that hung around all the way until the days of Herod. And Herod decided to give that building a facelift. And he spent many decades rebuilding the temple and putting gold pieces all over the place. He even hung over the door, much to the chagrin of the Jewish people, an eagle, a golden eagle that really represented foreign deities. Uh, and the Jews were like, what are you doing putting this eagle, desecrating the holy place? But he continued to do his thing, and he had very little resistance. But the temple in which Jesus walked the earth, and he pointed to saying, not one stone will be left here. It's going to all come crashing down. Um, the Jewish people didn't understand because Herod built things that would last. And what do you mean, Jesus? This beautiful temple is going to come crashing down. Jesus is like, yes, it will. Because the people are worshiping God with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. And they've made this temple into an idol rather than an instrument to connect with God. Jesus says it's got to come down. This great builder uh, was also ruthless, cunning, and according to history books, very insecure. He was a bigamist and a murderer. This Herod murdered his wife, his children, and political opponents who stood in his way. Matter of fact, we just read from the Bible how he gave a government edict in order to massacre the innocent children in Bethlehem. He was a bloodthirsty man to the point where Emperor Augustus, a Roman leader, once said, it is better to be Herod's sow than to be his son. In other words, it's better to be his pig. He'll take better care of you if you're his pig than if you are his son. And this is the world that our Savior was born into. A man with a, 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 a town or, or a, a province with a corrupt leader on the throne, which is why in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says, when King Herod, King Herod heard this, what did he hear? That a, another king was in the vicinity. When he heard this news, verse 3 says, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem is troubled because the king is troubled. And when the king gets a cold, Jerusalem gets pneumonia because when this guy is troubled, it spells trouble for everybody, and they know he is known to shed blood. So now, since he's troubled, the whole area is in trouble. So whenever this thin-skinned Herod got threatened, innocent people got killed. Another king? Oh, no. So once again, we must beware of romanticizing the Christmas story to a fault. The world into which Jesus was born was a hostile and dangerous world. King Herod was a destructive, religious, narcissistic, and murderous leader. And I'm here to let you know that that spirit is still alive today. 
and various dictators around the world than even one who is trying to be one in this country. But Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says that not only do you have a villain in this story, <laughs> you got some heroes in the story as well. Can I tell you about the wise men? The Bible says in verse 1 that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The word wise men in the Greek language is the word magi. And this is where in the English we get the word magi or wise men, depending upon the translation of the Bible that you use. Magi, magi. And in the, um, the lexicon, the um, Septuagint rather, the Old Testament in Greek language, which is called the Septuagint, because the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but they also translated it into Greek. And that version was called the Septuagint. And in that version, it talks about how those who served the king of Babylon were called magi or wise men. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 2, the magi or the wise men was comprised of a group of people who were magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers. So the magi, according to the book of Daniel, um, they were magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers. And due to their knowledge and predictive powers, because they could predict weather patterns, they could predict seasons and times, because of their ability to predict uh, things because of studying the stars, the magi were chosen to be counselors to the king because of their brilliance, this talent they had. Um, they were brought close to the king. And if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was one of the wise men, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because their knowledge was 10 times superior than even the wise men who were in Babylon. So the king brought them close and put them in his cabinet. Oh, my. Which is why when the king was ready to kill all the wise men, because he had a dream. And uh, normally, the king would interpret the, or, or give the dream, and the wise men would interpret the dream. But the king says, I'm not doing this this time because y'all have been giving me some messed up interpretations. Y'all have to tell me what I dreamed, and you got to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And all the wise men said, oh, who can do that? And, then, and, and the king said, well, I'm going to kill all of y'all if you don't do it. Daniel said, just give me one night. King, if you just give me one night. And the Bible says God spoke to him in the night and gave him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Daniel was one of the wise men or the magi surrounding the king. So if they were astrologers, the, these guys right here in Matthew 2, if they were astrologers, that meant that they worshiped the stars. But if they were astronomers, that meant that they studied the stars. Now, we don't know which one they were, whether they were astrologers who worshiped the stars and got into all the zodiac stuff that people get into today. Shame on you if you're a Christian and you're looking to the stars to tell you your future rather than looking to the one who made and hung the stars about your destiny. But then they could have been men who studied the stars. Whatever. Here's what you got to see. They were Gentiles. They did not know God. They were outside of the covenant promises of God. They were pagans. They were lost. 
but these are the people God chose to bring near to the Son. And I just happened to be one of those pagans who once was lost, but I was brought near to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God that salvation is not only for the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile and the Greek as well. Thank you, Jesus, for having an all-inclusive plan to save mankind. My God. So their natural talent to research the stars, it was a gift from God. And you have gifts and talents from God. Things that you can do that no one else can do. And rather than using that talent to say, look at me, you use that talent to say, look at God. Some of you can compute numbers in your head without a calculator, without writing them down. Don't use that to think you're better than other people. It's a talent. It's a gift from God. Some of you can paint paintings and, and, and compose songs and, and write plays and do architecture and look at biology and deal with medicine and deal with electricity and all kinds of computer technology. It's a talent that he gave you to glorify him and not yourself. So these wise men, who more than likely were unbelievers, had a talent that led them to Jesus. Oh, you got to use your talent and let it lead you to Jesus. Secondly, the wise men gave Jesus their best time. Not only did they give him their best talent of looking at the stars, and they saw the star in the east and began to follow it, and it led them to Bethlehem. They also gave Jesus their best time. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, they were wise men who came from the east. Verse 9 says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. These men were from the east. Now, we don't know for certain what nation they were from, from the east, but if we just look at a map, we could take a couple of guesses. They could have been from India, they could have been from Persia, or they may have even come as far east as China. So we don't know for sure what, what nation in the east they came from. They could have come from India. They could have come from Persia. They could have come from China. But here's what we got to look at. If they came from China, or excuse me, from India rather, they traveled approximately 5,086 miles to get to Jerusalem to get to Bethlehem. If they came from India, they traveled over 5,000 miles. If they came from Persia, they traveled approximately 9,174 miles to get to Bethlehem. So no wonder this trip took a long time. And they traveled in a caravan, and, and so they would stop regularly. So I know we think it was just three cats, because there were three gifts. But you're not rolling with that kind of treasure, which I'll get to in my third point, and I have a gang of dudes with you to protect you as you're carrying that stuff. And they just didn't travel like that. They were traveling caravans. So there was a group of them. And because they were led by a star, chances are they did the bulk of their traveling at night, just like God led the Israelites with the pillar of fire by night. So he's leading these people, and if you're traveling at night, you can't travel as fast as you could during the day. 
And they probably got to a place and stayed because like the Jews, they wouldn't move until they saw the star. Until God gave them the revelation to move on. And he could have had them camp for a week. He could have had them camp for a month. We don't know. But it took them time, time to get from the east all the way to the Middle East to get into Bethlehem. The Bible says we have seen his star in the east. Oh, you got to listen to this. God gave them a special sign, also known as special revelation. He, he gave them a supernatural revelation. So God is speaking to pagans. God is speaking to unbelievers, Gentiles, outside of the covenant promises of God as far as the Hebrew people. And God speaks to them, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how, but a little bit later it says God spoke to them in a dream. So be careful when you talk about who God can and cannot speak to, all right? Uh, because God can speak to whomever, whenever, to say whatever, to glorify himself, and ultimately to bring them to himself. Because no one understands, no one seeks after God, so God must seek after us. And he gave these men special supernatural revelation. Now, the Bible lets us know in the book of Romans that we can look at creation and know that there's a God. That's called general revelation. Then the Bible lets us know we can look at the Bible and listen to angels and get to know God salvifically. That's called special revelation. Hold on to your seats. God gave them general revelation through a star. And they followed that general revelation until that star not only led them to Bethlehem, but led them to the exact house where Jesus was in. And when they got into the house, they didn't need the general revelation anymore because they had special revelation right in front of them, and that was the word made flesh. So God gave them a general word to get them to the specific word. He gave them a general revelation to get them to the specific revelation. Pastor, what are you talking about? Let's apply this. If you're lost, you can look at creation because only a fool says in his heart that there is no God. But if you're honest with yourself, you can say, this ain't no intelligent designer here. This is God who put this thing together. And as you open up your heart to God, God will lead you to truth in the gospel in order to be born again. And the gospel is that God so loved you that he made a way for your sins to be atoned for, paid for, so that you could be right with him. And the way he did it was through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus that a person can know God for him or herself. General revelation into special revelation. But let's go, since I'm talking to Christians, let me give you a word of application here. A lot of us talk about, I don't know the will of God for my life. I just wish God would make it plain, make it clear. Where am I supposed to live? Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to do for a living? What church am I supposed to go to? What car am I supposed to buy? What house am I supposed to live in? We have these questions, and here's the deal. We have to act on the general revelation first before we expect to get some specific or special revelation second. Why should God tell you something specifically if you won't act on something generally? You don't have to pray about should I love my neighbor or not. That's general revelation. You shouldn't have to pray about, should I forgive this person or not? You forgive because what God wants to show you may hinge upon whether or not you'll obey him with what is general. <laughs> and if you won't obey him with what is general, why should he give you what is specific? Oh, that went over somebody's head, but a few of y'all got that. 
lot of people come, and they, they, they want God to give them his will like it's a crystal ball. And God is like, no, let's, let's walk together. Because walking together is just as much a part of your destiny as getting to the destination. Let's spend time together in the Word, loving on God, loving your neighbor, doing what you know to be true as written in the Word, and then watch Him show you specifically who your wife, who your husband, where you're supposed to work, what you're supposed to do in this situation, how much money you're supposed to give or spend. He'll speak specifically, but man, handle it generally first. My God. Now, based on Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 and 16, the wise men went on a journey that took approximately two years. Again, they may have stopped and started, but it was a two-year trek. How do I know that? Because the verses I cited, when they came and talked to Herod, they told him they were looking for a child, not a baby. Not baby Jesus, but child Jesus. When they come into the house, Jesus is a child. He's a toddler, about two years old. Because that's how long it took them once they saw the star in the east and got to the Middle East in Bethlehem, took them two years. So when Herod decided to try to kill Jesus by killing the children, he didn't kill babies alone. He killed children two years old and under. So this meant that they gave Jesus their best time by trekking from the east for two years to get to Bethlehem. And I just want to know, uh, where did you drive in from today? You know, they, they came from either Persia, India, or even China. Uh, where did you come in from today? You, you came in from Franklin. You came in from Antioch. You came in from Murfreesboro. You came in from Hendersonville. You came in from Nolensville. But I'm here to let you know, however far you came ain't as far as these brothers came. So every now and then, every now and then, I hear some grumbling and complaining about how far some of y'all have to come to get to church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, when there's a good restaurant that's 30 miles away from your house, 45 minutes, and they serve catfish just the way you like it, or your barber or your hairdresser live an hour away and to get your dude done right, you don't mind making the trip. But when it comes to church, all of a sudden, we want convenience. I'm not talking to y'all. I'm talking to people listening online who go to other churches. We're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. But folks from other cities got to take trains and buses to get to church. We're blessed with a parking lot. There are churches that don't even have ample parking. And even then, you don't have a right to complain. But if I hear one more person from Franklin talk about how far it is to come here to Brentwood, Nashville to go to church, I don't know what I'm going to do. When I was in Africa, God, see, when he gives you a global worldview, it deals with your current situation. When I was in Africa, especially South Africa, I saw adults and children Walk hours in the heat and the rain to get to church and from church. Walking. And when they got to church, there was no air conditioning in the church. 
There was no children's ministry in the church. There were no pews or benches in the church. But guess what? The Holy Ghost was in the church. Jesus was in the church. The Word of God was in the church. Uh, it was amazing. But they walked, which is why when they got to church, they would stay all day long. And this is why it's ingrained in black folks' culture. We go to church all day. <laughs> it's an event. <laughs> it's called a polychronic culture where you're not focusing on the clock. You're focusing on people. But those from Europe, th these are my studies coming out now from higher education. You come from a monochronic culture, and the clock rules you, and, and, and you in and you out. But when you come from polychronic, you don't, uh, the clock don't rule you, you rule it. And you hang and it's about relationship. Why? You know you got a long walk to get back home. Or you got to go back to working Monday morning in the fields. So when we come to church, we eating, we, we dancing, we hanging. We got step shows, drama teams, all of that stuff, uh, uh, bake sales. This is a multicultural church. We, we don't have all of that. We got some of that. So, so let me get on. Let me keep on moving. Praise God. <laughs> they gave him their time. You got to give him your time. He should get your best time, not your leftover time. You know, when you can, the fact we can get up on a Sunday morning and come to church and worship him. The fact we got a car with gas in it and we can get to church. We can call somebody who can get us to come. Man, we've got so much to be thankful for. Let's use our time to honor him. But thirdly and finally, and then we'll go home, the wise men gave Jesus their best treasures. Oh, yeah, this is how we give it. Watch this, y'all. They gave their best treasures. Look at verse 11. They've been traveling for two years. And when they had come into the house, stop and pause. This isn't a manger. This isn't an outdoor barn or any of that kind of stuff. This is a house. Mary and Joseph have moved up. They got a house. And the Bible says they saw the young child, not babe, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They traveled a long way to get into the house. But when they got into the house, they did what they came to do, which was to worship. And when they came and they worshiped him, I love how it says, Mary is mentioned she should get honor for delivering the Christ child as a young virgin lady. But Mary should not get worship because Mary is not worthy of worship. But they came and they worshiped the child. They did not worship Mary or Joseph. They fell down and they worshiped this child. And an extension of their worship was that they gave their treasures. An extension of their worship was that they gave their treasure. You see, their gifts were symbolic for this king. The gold speaks of the kingship of Jesus Christ. The frankincense speaks of the priesthood ministry of Jesus because the priest would burn incense or frankincense before God. 
and the myrrh spoke of the fact that Jesus was Savior because it was a lotion or a balm that was anointed on the body, especially those who had perished, in order to help their uh, uh, flesh preserve. So they gave Jesus gifts that were symbolic of his mission. He's king, he's priest, and he's savior. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these gifts, see how God works this now. Listen to this. These gifts would be used to finance their flight into Egypt in just a few days. So God supplied what they needed to get on the road before they got on the road because they didn't even know they were going to have to get on the road. But God says, I already have the answer before the problem arises. Because y'all got to get up and flee. Why? Because Herod is going to try to kill all of the children in order to kill the Christ child. So this family had to go and seek asylum in another country. Are you listening? Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? The true royal family had to seek asylum like refugees in another country. They had to take a flight into Egypt. They had to take a flight into Africa because Egypt is in Africa. So Jesus' feet touched Africa, and there was a chance Jesus learned to walk in Africa. Toddler Jesus learned to talk in Africa. You see, when you read the Bible with multicultural lenses on, you see culture jumping off the pages. You can consider China. You can talk about Africa. And then you can see what Hosea said in chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son, speaking first about the nation coming out of Egypt, and then God's son coming out of Egypt. Jesus went to Africa. But I wasn't told that in seminary. How can we worship a brown-skinned refugee child on Sunday? And turn away brown-skinned children on Monday who are seeking asylum in our country. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I pray I never get that. <clears throat> they brought their best gifts because they understood protocol. You do not appear before a king without a gift. Protocol. Because if you come empty-handed, that's a sign of disrespect to the king. Now, in the Old Testament, when Solomon had his throne in all of his glory, Sheba came from Africa in order to honor King Solomon. And when she came, she came bearing gifts because protocol in this world was you don't appear before a king empty-handed. Here's the beauty of the king. We, we don't give to get, but when we give, we get. What do you mean? Because the Bible says when Sheba gave to Solomon her gifts, he gave back to her more gifts than she gave him. Because the king then responds with a different kind of protocol, and that is, I can't let you out bless me. Because if you give more to me than I give to you, then I'm losing honor. So as you give to me, I got to give more to you because I'm going to get my honor. Because you're not going to leave here talking about that king was cheap. And God is like, you can't outgive me. Matter of fact, the gifts they gave to Jesus already belonged to Jesus. They weren't giving him anything that wasn't his. 
But because they were stewards and they wanted to honor the king, they gave Jesus their best, not their worst, not their last, their best gift. The gold wasn't nickel-plated. It wouldn't turn Jesus' little neck green. They gave him the best gold. Because the king deserves our best gifts. And we should say to ourselves, we should refuse to appear before King Jesus empty-handed in his house. You, you, you should make up your mind. When I get paid, God gets, quote, unquote, paid. When I get blessed, God gets blessed. He gets the first fruits, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, not the last fruits. He gets my best animal, not a three-legged one that's blind and got rabies. He gets my best because it's an acknowledgement that the blessing comes from him. Ah. They gave him their treasures. And if we are motivated to worship God with our best gifts and we refuse to come before the king in his house empty-handed, the best place to begin with giving our best gifts to God is with a tithe. I'm thinking about speaking on tithes in the new year just a little bit because I want to give you the history of this. But a tithe is a good place to aim for and launch from in our giving to God. Some of us are under a tithe. We're at mites. This is, what we, this is the best we can do, but I'm trying to grow. Why? Because I should grow in this grace of giving. And some of us need to launch from the tithe to greater giving. Some of us have been on a tithe since we were five years old. Let's grow. Let's give. And God is not just concerned about the 10%. He's also concerned about the 90 and how we use it because all of it is his. He's growing us as stewards. And these men, an extension of their worship was found in their hand. So as they lifted up hands, as they fell down and worshiped him, they also dug in their pockets and gave this king a gift. Let us not appear before Jesus empty-handed in this church. Worship as I close. They gave him their best treasures, but really it was an outgrowth of their best worship because before they gave the treasure, they gave their worship. I'm not making it up. The Bible says in verse 11 that they fell down and worshiped him and when they had opened their treasures. So the treasure opening and giving to the king was an extension or a natural follow-through of worshiping him for who he is. Can you imagine grown men, as many could get into the house, and maybe more outside with camels? They're excited that God led them to the child, to the king. And men who are not ashamed of God are willing to fall down and worship a baby or a child in the house. Because when God leads you to worship him, you're not worried about who's watching or what they think. And especially if you are a man of God, you will fall down before the Son of God and give him the glory that is due him. But when you're not growing as a disciple, when you're self-centered, which means you're on the center of the throne, you say, it don't take all that. <laughs> I don't need to fall down. No, no, I'll just stand during worship. I won't say anything. I'll just stand. With all that God has done for you, 
And if the Spirit says, dance, fall down, lift your hands, honor the king, do it. These men show us how to worship. They really do. But you know who else shows me how to worship? My dog. Lulu shows me how to worship. Because the word worship means to bow down and kiss the feet or the hand. Pros canuo. Pros is face. Put your face down. Canuo, revere or show affection towards. Pros canuo, put your face down. Because sometimes you can put your face down or tip your hat or salute someone you don't even have affection for. You just respect the office. But when it comes to worship, you respect the office and you love the one who holds the office. So you bow down and you kiss his feet or his hand. That's worship. Ah! And listen, and when the wise men came to give their stuff to Jesus, they weren't looking to get anything in worship. They were looking to give everything in worship. And Lulu said, you want to know what worship is? Watch me. Because one day Lulu and I were hanging with Bernard and Megan. And Bernard's got two greasy, mangy hood dogs <laughs> named Swiss and a homie, something like that. I mean, look like they straight up out of Compton, his dogs, right? Gangsta, they're gangsters. I can't leave my dog alone in their presence. So we're over there. Lulu licks my hand. Licks my hand. Swiss sees Lulu lick my hand. Swiss said to Lulu, Ew, you licking his hand? It don't take all that. Just bark a little bit. You ain't got to lick his hand. To which I was proud of my dog. Lulu answered Swiss and said, I'm sorry that my act of honoring my master is repulsive to you, but, but, but it does take all of that because you don't know what those hands mean to me <laughs> because those hands are the hands that pick me up and draw me close. Those are the hands that feed me when I'm hungry. Those are the hands that give me water when I'm thirsty. Those are the hands that wash me when I'm dirty. Those are the hands that grab the leash and walk me when I need to get out and protect me when there's a bigger dog in the community. Those hands will even come down and pick me up and hold me so the other dog doesn't get me. Those are the hands that will even pick up my mess when we're walking through the neighborhood. And you asking me why I'm licking these hands? Because the hands attached to the man have been awfully good to me. I just want to know, is there anybody here that ain't afraid to worship and kiss the hands of the Son of God who loved you, who picked you up, who turned you around, who placed your feet on solid ground, those hands that protect you, those hands that feed you, those hands that guide you, those hands that wash you, and those hands that will pierce 
for your transgressions, those hands that were pierced through for your iniquity. I got to worship him, not only with my mouth and my heart, but with my best treasure, my best time, and my best talent. He's worthy of all the praise. You don't know like I know what he's done for me. If you can't tell it, let me tell it. He's my king. He's my Lord. I'm so glad he came because if he had not been born, I could not be born again. Thank you, Jesus. Go tell it on the mountain everywhere. Let somebody know that Jesus Christ is king. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand. Let's stand for prayer. God, we give you the best because you're worthy. You deserve our best time. If that's in the morning to meet with you or at night to meet with you, Sunday morning to make time to get into your house, you deserve the best time. You deserve, Lord God, our best talents. We're tired of making it about us. We're tired of having people look at us and give us glory, and we get our reward. But, Lord, we want people to see through us to see you with the talents you've given us, unique talents. So may we not complain about how you made us and how you gifted us. We give those talents back to you because they come from you. And we thank you for every treasure that we receive. And we thank you, Lord, that on your quote-unquote birthday, because you're so gracious, we get to open up gifts. But before we open up one gift, may we be quick to open up our mouths and say thank you. May we be quick to open up our hearts and lift our hands, even around that tree. Thanking you for family, thanking you for love that is demonstrated one to another, but above all, thanking you for Jesus. Help us to teach our children the real meaning of the season. We love you, oh God. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for blessing this church. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not preaching this series from a place of, as Elder Sherman said, manipulation. Thank you for blessing this body. Lord, we just know there's much more we can do, but it takes more money and it takes more participation from your people. And Lord, may they see that the first reason you're calling them to give and to be obedient is for themselves and their relationship with you. And the church will just happen to be blessed as a byproduct of their obedience. So, Lord, if we don't know where to start in our giving, let's start with a tithe, 10% of our gross income to give back to you as an act of worship. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, wow, that we get to give you anything is amazing. And that you call these men from outside to come on the inside in your house. And that we're in this house today is just proof that you're still calling folk. We pray for our relatives and our friends, our sons and our daughters who aren't in the house. Holy Spirit, draw them. Lead them. Use us to plant seeds and water seeds. But Lord, draw them into your house, not just the church house, but into your kingdom. Draw them in. Save our family members and our friends and our co-workers. Save them, oh God just like you saved us. And if there's someone here today and you're not saved, this king is not your savior. Today is the day for you to say, King Jesus, be my savior. 
If you need to pray that prayer, you're lost today. You can be found. You can say, King Jesus, thank you for coming to die for me. I believe in you. Come into my life and be my Lord, my God, and my Savior. Pray that prayer. And if you're a Christian and you don't have a church home, maybe this church can be a home for you. You need to make a decision, even before you cross over into the next year, that you need to be officially a part of a local church. One thing that made those wise men successful was that they stuck together as a group. You need a group to grow in this world. You need a family with you. It needs to be official. And if you say, Pastor Chris, I, I, I want to look into this church being my home church. I'll be here after church. Come talk to me. Thank you, Jesus. Now unto him. Oh, Lord, you do exceedingly. You do abundantly. You do above all that we could ever ask or imagine. You answer prayers. We didn't even pray. You look out for us when we weren't even looking out for ourselves. You take care of us. We honor you to the only wise God, our Savior. Be all the glory, all of our worship, all of our praise, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You got to hug some folk before you get out of here. You got to hug somebody before you leave. Amen.